Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day, as it's been said. Um, uh, it's, I'm always intrigued by the differences between Father's Day and Mother's Day. I could preach a whole sermon. I'll just say that we spend, uh, we'll spend $12 billion on Father's Day today, and we spent $21 billion on Mother's Day. Just going to leave that there. Um, but on Mother's Day, we shared a reading um, because we recognize the diverse experience that we have with these holidays. And so on Mother's Day, we, we shared a reading called The Wide Spectrum of, Mo- of Mothering, and um, we got a great response to that. And so we've created a, a version for Father's Day called The Wide Spectrum of Fathering, and this is how it goes. To those who became fathers for the first time this year, we celebrate with you. To those who lost their fathers this year, we mourn with you. To those whose fathers left a wound in their heart that is still healing, we make room for you here today. To those of you who typically avoid Father's Day at church because you're tired of being beat up, we hear your pain and we pray today is not like one of those days. To those of you who are away from your father this year, we're thinking of you. To dads who spent hours this year assembling IKEA furniture, repairing cars, teaching math homework, and reading bedtime stories, We're grateful you've invested in your children. To those who admire and want to be like their father, we're grateful for your experience. To those who want to be nothing like your father, we acknowledge your experience too. To those who are physically, verbally, sexually, or emotionally abused by your father, we grieve with you and pray for your continued healing. To those of you who are stepfathers, we pray for you today as you navigate difficult waters. To those who are foster dads, big brothers, spiritual dads, and mentors, we're grateful you've chosen to father boys and girls, men and women who need your influence. To the single dads out there who are trying to fill two roles, we salute you for your heroics. To those fathers who lost the child this year, we grieve with you. To those fathers who are estranged from their children or unaware of their location today, we're thinking of you too. And to those who've longed to be a father but have not been able to, We pray you feel God's presence today. This Father's Day, we stand with you. Fathering is a challenge, and it humbles us all. Today is a celebration for some and a dark day for others. We have some mighty men with us today. And regardless of your experience on Father's Day, may we all remember that our Heavenly Father is not a reflection of our earthly father. Our Heavenly Father is the perfection of our earthly dads. And for that, we can give thanks. God, we pray that you would be with us this day. In a room with this many people, there are so many different emotions, experiences, and feelings when it comes to dad. And we pray that on this day, as we lean in and explore the scriptures about the love you had for us when you sent your son, Jesus, we pray that our imperfect relationships with our fathers the imperfect ways that we are fathering would not be a barrier to experiencing the relationship you want to have with us as our perfect heavenly father. In your name we pray. Amen. When I was in high school, I got the opportunity to begin getting involved in ministry. I, got, I was part of a student ministry that, that actually believed that students could lead. And so one of the ways that I began in that early stage to begin leading and influencing and ministering was leading small group Bible studies. So when I went to college, I got involved in a ministry that did Bible studies in the dorms. And so in the fall of 2004, I gathered a group of guys on Monday nights at 9 p.m., which was the time they couldn't do it without class, 
Now I'm thinking about it. Like, I don't know how I was awake at 9 p.m., but it must have been a lot of rock stars and Red Bulls. Um, but as we started that gathering with 18 and 19-year-old guys, I got more than I bargained for. Because each of these young men had been marked in their life. One had been raised by his mother. His father was distant. And until he came to our group, he'd never heard another man say, I'm proud of you. Another man felt like an absolute failure. This young man was battling an addiction. No matter the discipline and work ethic and self-control he exhibited, he continued to be defeated. And with each relapse, he buried himself in a deeper and darker depression. Another one of the guys was totally confident when he was with other men. He loved playing sports. He was popular with his peers. But when he was around women, he was totally sheepish. He couldn't get a word out. He would say things and do things that he regretted, and so he avoided women at all costs. Well, over time, our Bible study became much more than a Bible study. It became much more than reading the Bible together. We were calling one another to be the men that God created us to be. We were affirming one another. We were blessing one another. And in certain cases, we were doing for each other what our dads hadn't done for us. And it was a powerful time. One of the guys was describing our group to a female friend and he said, these guys, they're my elites. And she said, what's that? She said, well, they're the kind of people I would call at 2 a.m. if I needed somebody to talk me out of a mental spiral. They're the people who would show up to celebrate my biggest victory or my biggest defeat. The name stuck with our group. And so at the end of the semester, one of the guys had shirts made. They had big E on the front. And on the back, there was a quote that he'd chosen from a book we'd read over that year by John Eldridge called Wild at Heart. And this is what the quote said. He said, honestly, how do you see yourself as a man? Are words like strong, passionate, and dangerous words you would choose? Do you have the courage to ask those in your life what they think of you as a man? What words do you fear they would choose? That year marked me. And I still remember it today. And this morning, as we consider our series on Galatians called Jesus plus nothing, we're going to look at another thing that we struggle to add to the gospel of Jesus. And to do so, we're going to explore a conversation between two strong men of God. And on a day like today, Father's Day, I want to note the kind of relationship that I believe many men long for and yet never experience. And so if you have a Bible, if you pull it out or turn it on and go to Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. Galatians chapter 2, we're in this series called Jesus Plus Nothing in the months of June and July. And we're looking at the ways in which this community in Galatia struggled to embrace the gospel. And this morning, if you walked in, you got a bulletin with a handout in it. And I want to draw your attention to our big idea this morning. It's the central point of this text. And that idea is this, that our faith is in Jesus's faithfulness, not our own. Our faith is in Jesus's faithfulness, not our own. This morning, we're going to look at how that idea can be controversial, but how it can also set us free. So we'll begin in Galatians chapter 2 with verse 11. Paul writes, But when Cephas, and that's another name for Peter, if that name seems odd to you, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. 
For before certain men came from James, and James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the brother of Jesus, he was a pretty big deal. Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they, these men from James, came, Peter drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? This morning we're going to look at four lessons from Paul in this text. And the first one is that godly friends rebuke us with grace. Godly friends rebuke us with grace. This controversy has erupted between Paul and Peter. And if you know a little bit of the story here, Peter was born a Jew, which means that he didn't eat, much less associate with Gentiles. Gentile is a word that means non-Jew. And so when Peter followed Jesus, he had no idea what that was going to mean for him. And in Acts chapter 10, Peter has a, a dream and Jesus says, hey, there's no longer clean and unclean people. Places that you go, places everybody else goes, I'm rewriting this world. I'm changing everything. And so Peter became convicted that he should not only connect with Gentiles, but share the good news of the love of Jesus with them. And ultimately, Peter is the first person who brings a non-Jew to faith. And so he's eating in the city that they're in called Antioch, and he's eating with these Gentiles. But then these people show up from Jerusalem who don't believe that you should eat with Gentiles. In fact, they believe that if you're going to follow Jesus, then you have to adopt all of the Jewish laws, all 600 plus that oversee every area of your life. And so Peter is afraid of them and he pulls back from the Jews he's eating with and just associates with these newcomers. And Paul realizes what's happening. And so he says, I called him out and I opposed him. But what's so interesting that I want you to see this morning is how he does this. I don't know about you, but I've been rebuked before because I've made mistakes, big whoppers. And I've had people who've come and said, hey, Scott, you're, you're out of line. That's wrong. And I've been rebuked before and I've been rebuked with grace. And there is a big difference. I don't know if you had this experience too, but there's somebody who comes and tells you the truth and you like them afterwards. And there's somebody who comes and tells them the, tells you the truth and you never speak to them again afterwards. And that all comes down to grace. See, what Paul could have done is he could have gone on Facebook and said, I have this friend who shall remain nameless, <clears throat> Peter, and this is what Peter's done. No, but instead what he does is he does it in public, but he says to Peter, if you still have the passage open in front of you, if you look, he says, Peter, if you're a Jew and you don't even live like Jews, you live like a Gentile and you don't even keep the law, then why on earth would you burden these people with it too? He doesn't even make it about what Peter did that was wrong. He made it about his empathy and compassion for others. And he calls Peter out because Peter is struggling with this temptation of wanting to look good. Peter wants to look good. I figured you'd enjoy some blue steel this morning. And so uh, for those of you who are Zoolander fans, and uh, he wants to look good. 
But he wants to look good for people instead of being good. And if there's ever been a temptation or an error where this is hard, it's our era where we're tempted to look good for other people. We're tempted to make decisions based upon the opinion of other people. And so Peter, Peter says, you know, I'm doing this. This is the path I'm going. And Paul says, well, I will call that what it is. And I will call it hypocrisy. Now, what you need to know is that this word hypocrisy is a word that we know really well. We call someone a hypocrite when they say one thing and do another. But this word has its roots in this period of history. A hypocrite was a Greek actor who stood on a stage like this, put on a mask, and played a role. It wasn't a bad thing. You paid money to see it. It was a good thing on a stage in a theater. But when you left the stage and you left the theater and you put on a mask and you said one thing and did another, hypocrisy moved from something to be admired to something to be avoided. And so he says, even Barnabas has been led into this. Even Barnabas has been led astray. Do you have one of those friends that you go, man, the day that they fall, I get worried. Like they're so good. They're so perfect. The day that they lose it, I'm scared. That was Barnabas. Barnabas mentored Paul. I have to believe that some of the things that we've read in Galatians or Colossians or 1 Timothy are things that Paul learned from Barnabas. He said, even Barnabas, my mentor, was taken in by this deception. And it's a reminder to us that all of us are vulnerable to compromise. All of us. All of us. And if you ever think that it could never happen to me, if you ever think, oh no, I'm above that. Oh no, I don't wrestle with that. That'll never be a problem for me. You're in a dangerous place. Because if Barnabas could lose sight of the fact that the gospel is Jesus plus nothing, you and I could too. We could compromise. And what saves Barnabas and Peter and everyone else is a hard conversation with a friend. And I don't know about you, but I've been saved because people realized I had started compromising and they called me out on it. They had the courage and the love to have a hard conversation with me. And this morning, I want to ask you a question. Who has authority to rebuke you with grace? Who has authority to rebuke you with grace? Who have you given the permission to? Hey, if you see me acting differently, then you know I want to act. If you see me living in a way contrary to the direction you know I want to go, then call me out and call me up. It's scary to give somebody the authority to do that but it could save your life. When I was in Phoenix working with those as a a high school, college student with high school students, there were these two power couples in our student ministry. They were the ones that everybody admired. They were perfect, it seemed like, and they were best friends. They were the kinds of families that went to lunch together every Sunday. They went to birthday parties every weekend together. They went on vacation together every summer. They were just inseparable. And then one Sunday, we heard the news that one of these couples was going to get divorced. Everybody was crushed. We admired them. And uh, we turned to their friends, their best friends. We said, hey, what's going on? What's happening? We go, I don't know. We're just as shocked as you are. And I'm like, what? 
You've been best friends in this couple for 20 years. And you didn't see anything? You saw no warning signs? And the husband had left the wife and was living with another woman. And he was going to abandon his wife and three kids. And so we turned to his best friend and we said, dude, you got to step up. You're his best friend. You got to step in and go, dude, you're out of line. This is not who you are. This is not what we've taught hundreds and hundreds of students. This is not the life that you want to live. He said, you have to call your friend out. He goes, ah, we don't have that kind of relationship. That was the day that I redefined what a best friend was going to mean for me. John Acuff is a best-selling writer, and he said this, people who cannot be questioned often end up doing questionable things. People who cannot be questioned often end up doing questionable things. And if you don't have someone in your life who has the authority to rebuke you with grace, if you cannot be questioned by anybody, let me know. Because I'm going to avoid you. Because you're a dangerous person. Because one day you will do something questionable. Because you will have blind spots. You will not see them. You'll end up on vulnerable, shaky ground and no one will be able to tell you. The reason that we have First and Second Peter in the Bible is because of this conversation. I believe the reason the church went on successfully is because of this conversation. Godly friends rebuke us with grace. Paul continues in verse 15. Because he's reflecting on this Antioch experience with Peter while talking to the Galatians. And he says, Galatians, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if... In our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Second lesson we learned from Paul is that our identity comes from Christ's faithfulness. Our new identity comes from Christ's faithfulness. At the core of the Christian faith is this idea of an exchange. That we have exchanged all of the good deeds that we did in the past. All of the things that we previously looked to for hope and assurance of standing before God. And we have exchanged those things for what Jesus has done because we know that when compared to Jesus, our best effort is not worth holding on to. One place in the scripture calls it filthy rags. And so Paul says, this is the way we used to look at the world. We saw ourselves as Jews, and then there were those Gentile sinners, which is this negative, pejorative, looking down on statement on the rest of the world. He says, but now we don't define ourselves as Jews or Gentiles. We define ourselves by who we are in Christ. I'm no longer Paul, somebody who's done all these good things. I am now Paul, someone who is in Christ, not saved by the law and my good deeds, but by the grace of Jesus 
So Paul is saying, in a sense, that our faith is in his faithfulness. Our imperfect faith is in his perfect faithfulness. We all realize that, that even the faith we have is imperfect, it's inconsistent, it's not what we wish it would be, but it's not our faith that saves us. It's the object of our faith, the faithfulness of Jesus. And so he says, that's our new identity. And that changes how we view ourselves and it changes how we view others. See, no longer, Paul is saying, do we define ourselves by the traditional labels, by Republican, Democrat, male, female, old, young, tall, short, white, black, married, single, rich, poor, conservative, liberal, tea drinkers, refined, enlightened coffee drinkers. We don't define ourselves by any of those categories anymore. We define ourselves by who we are in Christ. And that's super important because we live in an age where we love labeling people. We love labeling people. Part of this is pragmatic. When, you, when I label you, it's because I am searching for a better way to understand you. And so if I realize you're a Cubs fan, then I realize that you're long-suffering and patient and you'll stick with me through hard times. When you're a Warriors fan, I realize I need to watch out because you could just go after the next good team and flake out on me, you know, like I'm, I'm labeling you. And here's the thing. Labels limit people. Initially, they're to help us, but long term, they limit who someone can be. And so we, li- we label somebody and we draw a box around them and that's who they stay. And if we're people who believe in this Jesus plus nothing gospel, then as one person stated, we are to have an incurable confidence in the power of Jesus to transform people. Do you have an incurable confidence in the power to the power of Jesus to change people, or do you love labeling people and limiting them? Do you want to have that experience from other people for you? Do you want to be defined and labeled? Or do you want to be transformed? And what Paul is saying is that if we're going to be a church together, our only hope is to be defined by Jesus and what he's done on our behalf. This is our only hope for unity. This is our, here at Cornerstone, only hope for unity. Because guess what? There is no one who agrees with you on everything except you. Not even your spouse agrees with you on everything. Not even your kids or best friend. And if you have to agree with somebody on everything politically, how you read the Bible how you live your life on a day-to-day basis, if you have to agree with everybody on everything, you're going to have a church of one. And I don't know about you, but the church was intended to be bigger than me and be bigger than you. So our unity cannot be in agreeing with each other. Our unity has to be in our new identity in Jesus which is way bigger and way stronger than coffee or tea, Cubs or Warriors, Republican or Democrat, conservative and liberal, 
and all these other things that we traditionally define ourselves by and create camps around and then judge other people for not sharing our opinion. Our new identity is in Christ's faithfulness and it's our only hope for unity. Paul continues with what is probably your most well-known verse in Galatians. He says in Galatians 2.19, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The third lesson from Paul is that Christ is now alive within us. Christ is now alive within us. Paul is doing something huge here that you're probably missing out on because you're not a first century Jew. Paul is turning his back and running away from 30 to 40 years of his life. He's leaving everything behind. We studied through Philippians as a church in the fall, and in Philippians 3, this is what Paul says was his view before his conversion. He says, If anyone thinks that he has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day as the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Paul says, when it comes to the law, all 600 of them, I did them all. This is as close to him saying, I was perfect as we can get. I asked in the first service if anybody thought they were perfect, and a little seven-year-old over here raised her hand and said yes. So it was really, really cute. But nobody else had the courage to join in. Because you have people sitting next to you who know you who will punch you really hard if you do. And Paul's saying, I put all of my hope in the law that if I could live a perfect life, if I could follow all of the rules, then I would be okay before God. But I had this nagging suspicion the whole time, what if I didn't do enough? What if I had a bad day? What if something got to me before I had my coffee? And he said, and I was right. He said, so I am leaving all of that behind. And I'm turning my back on it because Jesus has come in and he's radically changing everything. And this is what we need to know. That if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to put your faith in the Jesus plus nothing gospel, then here's what Jesus is going to do. When you encounter Jesus, he's not just an add-on to your life. You can't just do a little small renovation in your life's house with Jesus. He's going to come in like a wrecking ball and tear down things to the foundation and then rebuild. Jesus isn't just a little bit of a new kitchen. New countertops, new towel floor, new backsplash in the bathroom, new curtains in there. Jesus is coming to renovate everything. Everything. So when is the last time Jesus made you really uncomfortable? When's the last time he challenged your assumptions and how you looked at people? When's the last time he challenged your relationship with your job or your career? When's the last time he 
caused you to step back and rethink how you're spending your money, how you're spending your time. If Jesus no longer makes you uncomfortable, you've stopped following Jesus. And you've started adding something to the gospel that your hope is now in instead of Jesus. And it's like this. It's uncomfortable because he's not just reinforcing who we were before him. He's transforming who we are. And our hope is not in our faithfulness. Our hope is in his faithfulness. And this is why Paul says, this is why I'm doing all this. This is why I left all of that behind. I made this shift because of Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, my hope was in the law. My hope was in my good deeds. And you know, while my hope was in all of that, Jesus came and he loved me and gave himself for me. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. I wasn't asking for it. And he did it anyway. And so when people ask you, so why do you do all this? Why do you come to church? Why do you pray? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you give them your money? Why do you go to those events? Why do you go to Zambia? Why do you go to Honduras? Couldn't you go to the Caribbean and stop along the way, you know, all-inclusive sandals? Why why are you going to Honduras? Well, if Jesus loved himself and gave himself up for me, then doesn't me putting my life out there for him seem like the only natural response? Paul concludes this section in verse 21. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Our last lesson is this. Doing the right thing for the wrong reason is still wrong. Doing the right thing for the wrong reason is still wrong. Paul is saying that righteousness doesn't come through the law. And while many of us would say, I don't believe that. I don't believe I'm righteous because of my actions. Our dominant cultural theology embraces it. And it isn't Old Testament any law anymore. It's what I call a new law. And the new law is this. Be a good person. Make yourself happy. Help others. Don't ever be judgy. Be tolerant. Accept those around you. Be a good listener. Support other people. Make a difference in this world. And then when you die, Jesus bless you in heaven. It's the same law. We just have new covering on it. We're still putting our hope in our goodness and our righteousness that that is what will justify us before God. That that's why we have hope. And no matter whether it's the old law or the new law, living as if keeping the law justifies us it means that what Jesus did was a giant waste. Because if we were, weren't hopeless and dead in our sins, then he died in vain. If, if we could keep the new law, and that's where our hope was, Jesus, sorry, I think you could have spent AD 33 a different way. That cross thing, that was just... Sorry, we didn't need it. Don't feel bad. 
That's why I said in this series, you're going to be tempted to go, yeah, I've heard this all before, and assume that you're not vulnerable to compromise. Because if you add anything to what Jesus has done, whether it's the law or wisdom or something else we cover in the next few weeks, then what you're saying is that the cross was pointless. You could have done it yourself. And Paul says, no, our hope is not in our faithfulness. Our hope is in his. And so I hope over this summer you're challenged with what is your something? What have you added to the work of Jesus that is the place where your hope is? That is the place where you're looking to, if I can just nail that, I'll be okay. Other than Jesus. And I think for a lot of us, we profess the Jesus plus nothing gospel, but pragmatically, when push comes to shove, this is how we live. Jesus plus something. So here's some next steps I want to challenge you with today before we go and finish off the rest of that root beer. The first one is, I want to challenge you to empower one or two people with the authority to rebuke you with grace. This week, I want to challenge you to call somebody, email them, text them, get them together for coffee, buy them lunch, and say, hey, we can talk about whatever you want, but what I'm doing today is I am empowering you. I am giving you the keys to rebuke me with grace. If you ever see me being someone or doing something that is contrary to what you know is true about me, call me out and call me up. And that is something you're going to have to do this week and then in a month and then in a year. Because I don't know about you, but it's scary to call people out. It's scary to rebuke them with grace. We feel like, I don't have any room to do that. I'm I'm broken. I have my own issues. How could I tell them? Because they asked you to. Because they want you to. Because you would want somebody to do the same for you if the roles were flipped. Second thing, I want to challenge you to check your heart regarding your motivation for doing what is right. Check your heart when it comes to your motivation for doing what is right. And I've got two questions here I want you to think about and reflect on when it comes to doing good things with your life. Am I doing this in response to what Jesus has done for me or am I doing this as a means of establishing righteousness in my own eyes? We're not talking about what you do. We're talking about why. Am I doing it in response to what Jesus has done or am I doing it to look good in my own eyes? And this is where you can do the right thing for the wrong reason. Still be wrong. This, what you're doing right here, can fit this category. Some of you are here today because you think that you're better with God after you leave. That's why you gave some money in the offering plate. Or came to serve today. Right thing, wrong reason. And then third, I want to challenge you to memorize Galatians 2.20 as a reminder of the gospel and your new identity. Now, I know we don't memorize any things anymore. We have Siri and Google. We don't need that. But sometime you're going to need to remember this and your phone isn't going to be charged and you're not going to be around Siri. So memorizing this verse is a reminder and it's a chance to repeat to yourself every day this week, this is who I am. And I'll remind you what Galatians 2.20 says. 
I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is where our hope lies, as broken and imperfect as we are. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this reminder today from Galatians 2. We thank you for the fact that we get a chance to hear on a regular basis the reminder of the gospel that without you we are more broken and sinful than we could ever imagine. And yet because of what Jesus has done in you, we are more loved and accepted and known than we could ever comprehend. And none of that has anything to do with our good deeds. None of it. We couldn't ever earn it. We definitely don't deserve it. It is a gift from you. And we pray that in these days, in this summer, we would be reminded to renew our identity in you. That we would reaffirm our faith in your faithfulness, not our imperfect faithfulness. And we pray that our view of ourselves and the world would be shaped by this. We pray that you would create in our hearts an incurable confidence in your ability to transform people. That we would look at people through the lens of the cross, not the labels we've written on them. And we pray that in us and through us, you might take this gospel to the people around us whether we're on a mission trip on the other side of the world or in our neighborhood or in our job or in our families, you want to use us to share this good news. But it has to be good news to us first. So we pray that you would make this our vision, our perspective. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.